and glad to be with you. We have a lot to cover today, so let's jump right into it. If you have a Bible, device, whatever you carry with you, we're going to be in John chapter 4 today. We're continuing our series through the gospel. Uh, We are not going through one gospel. We are trying to chronologically go through all four gospels in one kind of chronological story. And so Today, before we actually jump into the Word, I want you to take a moment to ask yourself a question. And I'm not asking for you to, like, yell out answers, because that'll get awkward. Okay? What are the groups of people, or maybe just one group of people, that for you, you just struggle with? Like, you just have a hard time loving them, or caring about them or just not wanting to be blatantly rude to them. Or maybe it's just a person. But if there's a whole group, think about that. And I just want you to keep that in your mind for a second. And I think if we're all honest, we have that. And don't go for the low-hanging fruit. Okay? Don't be like, I hate pedophiles. Good. I'm glad you don't like pedophiles. Okay? It's not what I'm talking about. It's like just a normal group of people that for whatever reason, maybe some sort of thing in your life, you're like, I just struggle with those people. I want you to be honest about this, because you don't have to share with anybody, although I think it would be an interesting conversation to have later with your spouse or your family, if you're willing to be vulnerable and open up that. But sometimes the answer to this is, is kind of surprising. I remember I was a college pastor in Oregon for a while, and there's a young woman who is in our college ministry, and we had this conversation, like, who's that group of people? And I actually asked them to share it if it was appropriate. And uh, this young woman was a some sort of a scientist, and she worked with rivers and lakes, fresh water in, uh, in Oregon. And she's like, I hate environmentalists. That was her answer. Like, of all the people, that was just her struggle because she felt like they made her job harder and that they would just kind of get in the way of everything. And she was this just sweet girl, and it kind of surprised me. She was like, I hate those people that love the earth. <laughs> we don't know, because we don't know the situations that we've gone through in life. There's all kinds of context, but I think we all have somebody, some group of people that maybe we struggle with, and maybe you have good reason, or maybe you don't. But the reason why I bring this up is that this gospel story that we've reached today is all about Jesus interacting with a person. And she is a person that represents the bottom of the barrel to Jewish society. She is a person that represents everything that the Jewish people in the first century hated. She was a person that most people would have said Jesus would never even have a conversation with. She's a Samaritan woman who is so notorious for her sin that even amongst her own Samaritan people, she is looked down upon. And just the fact that she's a Samaritan, which is her race, her ethnicity, means that she is hated by most of the Jewish people. Now you may have heard the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a different story in the Bible. And uh, I think I have a picture here of someone's artistic rendering of the Good Samaritan. The reason why that story is shocking for the first century audience is not just that it's a person who was doing a good deed, 
It's the very idea that there is a such thing as a good Samaritan. For the Jewish audience that hears that story, they're like, what do you mean a good Samaritan? That, that is an oxymoron. But in their story, in Jesus' story, he talks about this man as a good Samaritan because in the first century, the Samaritans were the most looked down upon people in their world. Most Jewish people would literally go miles out of their way just to avoid even interacting with somebody who was a Samaritan. So read with me in John chapter 4, just the first few verses as we start out. We're going to see this story that would have shocked the original audience. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not, did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And notice this, verse 4, it says, He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. I want to show you a picture also of Jacob's well, which is still there. You can visit it today. Now it's in the basement of an Eastern Orthodox church. You can kind of see the well back there where the rope goes down behind the bucket. At the time, obviously, it wasn't inside of a building. It was just a well outside, but they've built a whole church around it. You can visit it. You can see it. So it's not what we imagine as a well. You know, big, huge thing, the circle, every picture that you saw of this story as a child. It's different. It's literally just a hole in the ground. And so Jesus goes, and he sits there. I love, just as a side note, it says that Jesus went there wearied as he was from his journeys. This tells us Jesus is a man. He's fully man. He's fully God. He gets tired and thirsty when he's on a journey. And that's a pretty amazing thing to know about him. But I want to give you some context. I've, I've told you that the Jewish people hate the Samaritans and vice versa. I'm going to give you some context of why. If you go back from this story 700 years to 722 BC, the leader of the Assyrian Empire, a guy whose picture I have, Shalmaneser V, Good picture, right? I'm a little jealous of that beard. I'm not going to lie. Shalmaneser V comes down and he conquers most of Israel. And they take the ten northern tribes of Israel captive. And when the Assyrians would do this, they would take most of the people, especially the men, the fighters, the warfare kind of people, they would take them and move them out of their homeland. And this would destroy any sense of nationalistic pride that they had. This would kind of undercut them. They can't battle, but they would leave poor people, farmers that worked the land, and a lot of women. And so Assyria comes in, takes away most of the people from that area, but then moves in their own people. And then as those people come in, they begin over time, over hundreds of years, to intermarry the Assyrians and the Sumerians, and 
eventually they become a group known as the Samaritans. And so for the Jewish people, the Samaritans are half-breeds, they would call them. If you've ever seen the Harry Potter books, mudbloods, they would call them. Right? They're mixed race. And for the Jewish people, being a pure Jewish race was so important to them that they would hate anybody who wasn't. And so over this time, it begins to build up this animosity, this tension, because they don't like each other. The Jewish people believe that the Samaritans are polluted. And so they are completely ostracized from Jewish society. People eventually start to, the Samaritans eventually realize, well, we're not welcome with the Jewish people, so we're going to make our own religious system. And so they take the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but they throw out everything else, all of the prophets, all of the wisdom literature. They say, we're just going to take the Pentateuch because everything else talks about the nation of Israel being the focus. But we're going to make our own focus where we get to be God's people. They even at one point build their own temple on the slope of Mount Ebal, or on the slope of Mount Gerizim. So they have their own temple, they have their own religion, and this builds up even greater animosity between them because now they have these warring ideas of faith. If we have that, do I have that map picture up there? I want to show you guys. Oh, sorry. Before you get off this, this is interesting. Sorry, side note. The Samaritans still exist to this day. There is still a very small group, about 860 people, that exists in Israel today who are still Samaritans. And so you can actually look this up. It's a pretty interesting story to see. Okay, next. Do I have that map? Can you see that? Sorry, I'm out of whack today. No? Okay. So... All of this leads to an incredibly bitter feud between the Samaritan people and the Jewish people, which lasts for 700 years up till now. So as I said before, because of this intense history between them, the Samaritans will be avoided at just about any cost. So when it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, that's incredibly interesting because most of the time if the Jewish people wanted to go from Jerusalem in the south up to Galilee in the north, right in the middle of there is Samaria. They would actually go all the way east, past the Jordan River, go up and around and go back in just to avoid being anywhere near the Samaritan people. But Jesus says, I have to go to Samaria. It's not that it was the only way. It's that he had a divine appointment in Samaria with a woman. And that's why he has to be there. So let's read on. John 4, 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew... Ask for a drink of water from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you 
living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank it from drank from it itself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus then said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on the mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. This woman comes to draw water from the well. And immediately, before we even get to the conversation between her and Jesus, there's something odd. It tells us that she's drawing water at noon, which is very weird. Most of the time, the women would come either early in the morning or late in the evening when it was the cool of the day. But she's there drawing water right in the heat of the day, in the middle. Why would she do that? Because this woman is so scandalous, even amongst her own people, that she does not want to be a part of the water cooler talk that is going on at the well. Because it's about her, most likely. They're talking about the rumors of who she is, and this woman who's gone through five husbands, and we don't even know the details, whether she's widowed five times, or whether there's been divorces, or cheating situations we don't know but but she is scandalous and so she's avoiding even her own people by being at the well when nobody else is she's on her sixth man and i'm sure that the other women of samaria think that she's a little strange so she wants no part of that but then something even more shocking happens than a woman being at the well at noon She's there, she goes to draw water, and then a Jewish rabbi speaks to her. He says, give me a drink. Now at the time, not only was it odd for a Jewish rabbi to speak to a Samaritan woman, it would have been odd for a Jewish rabbi to speak to any woman, unless it was his wife. And then, even then, usually only at home. Even if they were just out in public, he wouldn't talk to his wife. It was very odd 
for him to have a conversation with any woman because in their world that was not looked down that was not looked upon well if you think ladies that you've ever dealt with sexism in today's world let me tell you first century israel for a jewish woman let me read you a quote from a jewish rabbi i think i have this one on the screen prolong not conversation with a woman even with one's own wife how much more a neighbor's wife he who prolongs conversation with a woman brings evil upon himself ceases from the words of the law and at the last inherits gehenna which is their word for hell this was their view at the time of just having a conversation with a woman and yet jesus is sitting at the well and he speaks to not only a woman a samaritan woman and a Samaritan woman with a very bad story, a history. Jesus obviously doesn't agree with this sentiment because he is speaking to her, not just a woman, but a woman with a sketchy past from Samaria. Because that alone, a woman from Samaria with a bad past, that would have been three strikes, you're out for most people. But Jesus sits and he asks her, for a drink, and she immediately is shook by this. And, and I want you to notice how, over the course of the story, she goes, we don't know voice inflections, but as I read this story, I feel like she's being pretty snarky at the beginning. She's like, you're a Jew. Why are you talking to me? And by the end of the story, she's like, sir, please give me some living water. Right? You can see how she changes over it. But in the beginning, she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then he jumps right into it. He says, if you only knew, lady, if you only knew what I'm offering you, you would be asking me for living water. She thinks that he's talking literally. So she says, you don't got a bucket. How are you going to get living water? And even that, this isn't living water. In their society, living water are streams. And rivers, water that's flowing, it's fresh. This is stagnant water from a well. She thinks he's talking literally, but he's talking about something that she can't even understand yet. She says, you don't have a bucket, and the well is deep, and it's stagnant, but he's not talking about that water at all. Throughout the whole of scriptures, the water, the living water, represents the Spirit of God. It represents faith and life and the power of the Lord. But she doesn't understand it. She says, this part is hilarious to me. Do you think you're better than Jacob, our father? Which, this is just my opinion. If you guys have been with me, I think when Jacob, if you know the story, I think when Jacob wrestled with the angel of God, I think Jacob was wrestling with Jesus, and Jesus won. And so I wonder, she's like, you think you're better than Jacob? He's like, well, I did win the fight. I messed up his hip forever. So, I mean, changed his name, okay? He didn't really say that. That was the Nick International version, okay? <laughs> Jesus' response to this is, is just as mysterious. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up with eternal life. Boy, isn't that true for us? That water that only Jesus can bring, 
is the thing that can quench. There's all these other things that we try to quench our life with, and it never works. And most of you have done this. You, you tried to quench the thirst that you have in you with a new truck or with a new house or with a certain number in your bank account, or with the job that was your dream job, or whatever it is that you think will fulfill that deep heart desire in you, and yet you get it, and you realize a week later, a day later, a month later, there's still this hole. And I can't fill it with things. And I can't fill it with jobs. I can't even fill it with relationships. And so Jesus is telling her, whatever you think will quench your thirst, you will be thirsty again. But I have living water, and you will never thirst again. He's trying to get her to understand a truth that is so far beyond our understanding until you actually take part in it. The only thing that can quench that deep thirst in our soul is the one who made our soul in the first place. See, I'm going to be thirsty again after that. At this point, she hasn't caught on to it. And so she says, give me some of this water so that I don't have to keep coming here and drawing water. She's still just taking literally. And I love this. I had a conversation with my family yesterday about this scripture. We sat down because my wife was like, we should do a Bible study. I was like, I should say yes to that because I'm a pastor. Okay. So we talked about this story, and my wife had something to to say that was so brilliant, and I hadn't even thought about it. She said, the whole time that Jesus is having this conversation with this woman, he's trying to give her eternal life, and she's like, I just want water. Right? And how often is God trying to do something amazing in our lives, and we're like, I just want water. God's saying, I'm trying to give you eternal blessing. You're like, I just want that girl. God's trying to do something that will shift eternity for you. And you're like, I just want that job. And we keep arguing with God about these little things because it's all that we're focused on. She's so focused on water that she's missing that the God of the universe is trying to give her salvation. And we do the same thing. We cry out to God, God, I just really want... God, I just really want. He's like, I'm trying to do something so much bigger and you're missing it. We're all guilty of this and she is too. But now Jesus flips the conversation and he makes it personal to her specifically. Imagine you're this woman. Imagine Jesus comes and sits at your kitchen table and he just starts telling you like laying bare all of your sins. Right? He says, go and get your husband and come here. He knows what he's saying. She says, I have no husband. He says, you don't currently have a husband, but you've had five, and now you're living with a guy. He knows everything about her. I want you to notice here, though, Jesus does not berate her. He does not mock her. He doesn't yell at her. He doesn't make a sign that says, down with women who have five husbands. He has a conversation with her. He continues to interact with her. He tells her everything about her own life. And I love this next part. It's hilarious to me. He lays out her whole life, and she's like, you know, I think you might be a prophet. 
Those are some great powers of deduction you've got there, lady. But then she does what a lot of people will do when they're faced with a, with a spiritual truth of their own life. She deflects. She doesn't want this conversation to be about her. He brings it right to her, right to who she is, to the struggle in her heart. And then she says, you know, you, you seem like a prophet. And then she starts to ask him theological questions. She starts talking about how they have their temple on Mount Gerizim, but the Jews have their temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And where is the real place that we should worship? And she has this whole theological framework that she wants to answer. But Jesus is not talking about all that. He wants to talk to her. And you might have someone in your life who will do this. You want to talk to them about them, and they'll just be like, well, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? No. No. Because that would limit his power. He can't do it. Anyways, that's not the point. But they'll say things like that because they don't want the conversation to be focused on them. They want to deflect it. He answers her as Jesus often does by telling her, you're asking the wrong question. You're you're missing the whole point. He says, a time is going to come. The hour is coming and it is here now. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He says it has nothing to do with where you are worshiping. It has to do with how and who you are worshiping. We worship the Father and we worship him in spirit and in truth. I thought about that a lot this week. Because you guys know we're in the middle. We just bought some property and we want to build a new building. And I really, truly, in all all my heart, believe that that's an important thing for us. And that we're going to be able to do more things with that property. But it has nothing to do with being the church. As I've said many, many times, you are this church. Not this building. Not a new building. It is the people of God coming together to worship God the Father, and hopefully we are worshiping him in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? We worship him with our spirits, with our souls, the very part of us that is meant to be eternal. Some people are really good at this part, the spirit-filled worship, right? Maybe you've even seen people that freak you out a little bit because you're like, whoa, easy with the flag waving. I don't get it. Okay? Like they're spiritual and they, they, they cry out to God. They have this spirituality. They pour themselves out completely. But that's only half of it because we are also called to worship in truth, to use the minds, the brains that God has given us to grow in knowledge and understanding, to know the word of God. Both of these we are called to as Christians to worship God in spirit and in truth. I love the way that one pastor said it. He, he said he was at a church that was very, very spirit-filled, we'll say. And he, he said, I was worried some of them would blow up. I was worried that they would just blow up. He said, but then I've been to other churches where they're so academic and they're so just focused on learning that I was worried that they would dry up. They're going to blow up or they're going to dry up. And so if you focus on one of those things, something is not fulfilled in how we are called to worship God. He says, you are called to worship in spirit and in truth. 
So I hope and pray that we would neither blow up nor dry up, but as a church we would seek to worship God both with our full mind and our full soul and spirit to where we we just give ourselves completely to him, but then we also use everything that God has given us as our faculties to grow to know him. As we come back to the story of the woman at the well, it seems that this answer is a little over her head. Because, again, she tries to deflect. I love this. She just kind of says, well, the Messiah is coming. He'll tell us. Right? She thinks that's her out. She plays the God card. Well, you know, the Messiah is coming. He'll let us know. And that's when Jesus drops the bomb, the truth bomb on her. He says, I who speak to you am he. She tries to pass it off. Ah, Messiah is coming. He'll let us know. He says, I'm letting you know right now. I'm standing here in front of you. Jesus clearly and without question tells the woman that he is in fact the Messiah, the Savior, that her people and the Jewish people have been waiting for all the way back to the time of Moses. Then suddenly, right at the culmination of this story, the disciples show up. I love it. Like, if you watch this as a movie, you'd be like, this is the rising action. We've hit the climax. And then all of a sudden, you got like Peter walking around and be like, hey guys. Verse 27, just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Right? They've figured out at this point, don't question him. He knows what he's doing. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So they went out of the town and were coming to him. The disciples show up. They're shocked to see that Jesus has been talking to this woman. But they know better. Then she suddenly leaves her jar behind. I love this. The whole reason that she's there is to get water. And then she just leaves the water jar behind. This whole interaction with Jesus has her shook. She says, i got to go back and tell people. And so she goes and she starts to tell people. And as she's doing that, people start to come out of town to see Jesus. But then in in the interim, we get this brief little conversation that is so packed with Jesus and his disciples. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. This is like every Jewish mom. Eat, eat, right? But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to another, I love how confused they are. Has anyone brought him some food to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here they are saying, holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored And you have entered into the... Okay, there's a lot. Brief little conversation, but it's so packed. They come. They offer him food. He's like, I'm good. I already ate. What? What? 
Did somebody else bring him food? He says, no, 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 it's not about that. He says, my food is doing the will of God. He's trying to get them to understand something that they don't yet understand, but they will. That there is nothing more fulfilling in this world than doing exactly what God has created you to do. There is nothing so incredible. And I hope that all of you have had this experience that you know what God has put you in this world to do and that when you do it, you have this sense of fulfillment that nothing else can bring. And if you haven't had that yet, I pray that you would start praying to God and asking him to show you exactly what that thing is for you. Jesus flips the conversation on them and he tells them something that I think we all need to think about. He says, do you not say that there are four months until the harvest? Look, the harvest is ready right now. Now, I would have to talk to Dave or Mark to to understand the actual farming ideas here. They're beyond me right now. But this whole idea that the farmer sows the, 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 the fields, and then he says, okay, when, when the time is ready, off in the distance, months from now, then I will go out to harvest. And Jesus is saying, so often, we kind of put it off to, the, to later. We say, eventually, the harvest will be ready, and I will go out, and I will do what God has called me to do. But Jesus says, stop worrying about eventually, and look right now, the harvest is coming. And we don't know this, but Bible scholars think... He's probably looking out at the Samaritans who are now coming out to the well. The lady told them, now they're coming, and he's looking out. He can see them coming in the distance, and he says, look, the harvest is right there. Stop putting off until the future what you can be doing right now. Do what God has created you to do. He says, it's ready And he tells them this beautiful truth that's so hard for us to understand sometimes. He says, often it's, it's not the people that went out to sow the seeds that are the ones that are there at the time of harvest. Often, one person sows and another reaps. Oftentimes, one person gets to take joy in the crop that they did not plant. He says, I'm allowing you guys, my disciples to reap a harvest for which you did not do any work. And that is this amazing truth of being a Christian, is that we don't do the work. We did not die for anybody. We did not save anybody's soul, but God allows us to be one of the harvesters that goes out and is a part of the process of bringing the harvest in, the people of God. And we are all on the same team. We are not trying to say, like, look how many seeds I planted and how many I harvested. It's not about that. It's about doing whatever God's created you to do. Maybe you will be an amazing seed planter, but you may never harvest. Or maybe your person comes in later and harvests that seed. I don't know. But God has created all of us with these gifts. And I think about this all the time in my life because I can think back to conversations that I've had in my life that didn't lead somebody to accepting Christ right then and there. And I think about those conversations and I wonder, 
if the conversation led anybody like closer to Jesus, if somebody else came in later and, and were, was able to harvest, and I, I rejoice in the idea that they did. But I, I think back to that. When I was 16 years old, I had a three-hour-long conversation with a guy on a flight from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco, California. We talked about the Lord. We talked about all sorts of things. He did not get down on the middle of the airplane and cry out to Jesus. That'd be a really cool story, but that's not what happened. But he left. He said, hey, I have some things to think about. And I pray for him sometimes. I don't even know his name. I sowed a little bit of seed, and, and I pray that somebody else came to harvest it. I had another conversation when I was about 20 years old. For two hours, I talked to a guy in the lobby of a hotel in San Diego, California. We talked about creation and God and, and Genesis 1 and all kinds of things. And he did not get down in the hotel lobby and praise Jesus. But we had a good conversation and I hope that it led to something for him. My point here is not to talk about myself, but it's to point out that we have these interactions, these opportunities all the time to sow some sort of seed into people's lives. And it's not up to us to worry about whether or not we are the ones that get to harvest it, but we just plant that seed and ask God to work through it. So we plant these seeds, we have these conversations, and maybe it's even with the very same people that we struggle the most to be around, to love, to care for. Who are your Samaritans? Who are the people that you never, ever think that God would possibly use you to have any impact in their life? Maybe they're exactly the people that God is going to take you on a journey towards, and you'll find yourself having to go right through Samaria even though there's another route that you could take where you could avoid them, but you just feel like God is saying, no, you have a divine appointment in the midst of this. At the end of the story, I think we can see that Jesus did, in fact, give this woman some living water. And she takes it back to the people in her town, and it begins to immediately overflow as she tells people about Jesus. And then they come out to meet him and they invite him to come and teach them and to stay with them for a couple days. And he does that. And they start to believe in him. And then they say something amazing to her. I love this little tidbit in the story. They, something, they say something to her that should be the longing of every Christian to hear. They say in verse 22, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. She shares her testimony, which opens them to Jesus, but then they go and they hear Jesus. And they understand who he is from him. And then they say he is the Savior of the world. This is what I want to come to a close with today because that title that they give to Jesus is only used a couple times in the Bible. And it is so significant because this moment of this story, as we work chronologically through this story, this moment 
is a shift. Everything that Jesus has done up to this point has been focused on Israel and the Jewish people. And then for the first time, he goes beyond the Jewish people. And this is where we see, if you've been a part of our church or part of any CMA church, we call ourselves an Acts 1-8 family. It's one of the core verses for our entire denomination. And it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea. Those are both Jewish people groups. And Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this is the moment that we see in Jesus' life where he extends beyond Jerusalem and Judea and goes into the next level, which is Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the world. This is the moment where we see Jesus is not just the Jewish Savior. He is the universal Savior. And they say, we see that he is the Savior of, of the world. It is pivotal to his entire story. This is the first step in the gospel where we understand that the mission that we are all a part of is a universal mission. And that it goes beyond just their people group. It goes beyond just our people group. And even goes to the people groups that maybe we look at and say, I want nothing to do with them. And yet God still says, I love them. And part of your calling is to take this message to the world because I am the Savior of the whole world. Let's pray.